Welcome back to Ah. Uh. Welcome back to Art Smack. I'm your host, Jerry Gagosian, and I'm sitting across from a Mr. Matthew Capasso. Mr. Matthew Capasso, I have a question. I have a question. Pick me, pick me. Yes, Jerry. You're so cute. Do you have a girlfriend? Jerry, the audience does not want to hear this. You look so cute in your glasses. Is this, is this what you're going to do the intro? Is this oh. what, when I turn the reins over? This is I'm what sorry. We get? I'm sorry. I just thought, you know, if you want something done right, you've got to do it yourself. And since you've been doing the intro for so long, it's my turn to do it my way. And I thought I would bully you this week a little bit. No, but we've got a great show for you this week. First, we're going to be discussing some art that's in the headlines. And the headlines in general, because they seem to be a little out of control. And then we're going to be discussing a paper put out this week by Mr. Matthew Capasso. <clears throat> Whoa, he writes? Oh my God, he must be really yeah. great. Hence the reverence of the Mr. Maybe that was on purpose. So let's jump right into it, shall we? Welcome back to Art Smack. God, the headlines this week are just out of control. Well, out of control in the sense that the world is out of control, but it has been for a while. But out of control isn't like you don't know if these headlines are jokes or not. I know. it's You know what I was, I was thinking? Like the art world, it's kind of a quiet time. There's really not much going on from a news perspective in the art world. And it seems like a lot of our our mates at the publications are just, they're kind of in the grasping for straws phase of, of reporting on, on anything related to the art world. It's been very entertaining to watch. And Jerry, this week I do have to make a confession to you. What? It's kind of tough, but <laughs> I think I need to get it out. What? I have an addiction. Oh, Jesus Christ, should we have your family here for this? No, no. I, I think this one's not going to be able to get cured anytime soon, but... Oh, God. Is it masturbation? <laughs> <laughs> I've become addicted to reading op-ed articles in the major publications and... The major publications? Okay, you better state which one's up front. I can't stop reading op-eds in like the New York Times, the Wall Street <laughs> Journal... Like, I used to be the guy who woke up and I would, I'd do my newsletters in the morning and I'd do, what's the New York Times, what's the headline or the journal? Mm -hmm. And now I've been making a beeline right to the op-eds because they're getting out of fucking control. Like, you read them for the juice. These guys and gals, it's incredible how wrong they are almost all of the time. Like, they, these guys... It reminds me of these ESPN sports talking heads. Yeah. Like, Michael Jordan is so much better than LeBron James. And it's like, well, he I was, don't know. But... That was maybe a bad example. <laughs> but these guys who are professional take havers, and it's like that culture has permeated into the op-ed section. So I've just been like just lapping all of it up. And I'm going to start keeping a tracker of how wrong these guys are about politics, about the economy, about the war, about all types of things. And 
they just keep getting hired and they just keep getting paychecks and continue to put out bad mm-hmm. pieces of opinion editorials. So I saw two that I really want to 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 bring by you and just get your thoughts on it. Sure. The, the first one was from our friends at the New York Times. Not quite art related, but in and of itself, I wonder if this piece of journalism is in fact uh, a, a form of performance art because of the absurdity of it. So the headline is, there has never been a better time to be short. <laughs> you might think, what do you mean? I mean, literally, this person argues that being a short person is the best thing in the world and that tall people are evil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So all my friends who are out there swiping on Hinge, mm-hmm. there used to be that thing where you would lie about your height and say you're a little bit taller than you are. Like if mm-hmm. you were like 5'10", you should always try to say you're, you're six foot. Mm-hmm. Now, my friend, according to Mara Altman, you should be you should be shortening yourself. <laughs> it's, it's, it's incredible. And she goes into the, the piece and talks about how tall people create more garbage in the world and how she's like purposely <laughs> underfeeding her children so that they don't grow. Yeah. And like, this is the juice that I look for yeah. in the morning, my op-eds. Professional, what did you call them? Professional? Like take. Havers. Yeah. They're paid to just give takes and it's it's really great. It's yeah. just so good. The other one though is art related. Mm, okay. This one's really great. So this comes from our friends at Hyperallergic. Mm. Great Dear publication. Friends. Dear friends. We love them. It's a premier news outlet that you know, mm-hmm. plays the hits and- this one came out a couple days ago by a writer, Elaine Veli. And the title of this one is, Did Air Pollution Inspire Impressionism? A new study posits that rising smog levels in the 19th century London and Paris likely played a role in blurring the lines of realism. And she uses Claude Monet mm-hmm. and J.M.W. Turner as the poster boys for this theory. Mm-hmm. She cites a, a report from some people at Sorbonne University and Harvard that analyzed Turner paintings and Monet paintings and tracked, I guess, smog levels in the atmosphere at the time. Uh-huh. And according to their research, they believe that the style of those paintings became hazier and harder to depict because of pollution. Mm. So this has been refuted in like four outlets that I've seen that have come out afterwards. Like the Washington Post had another op-ed where they were going against it saying like that report was bullshit. What, what did, how did they refute it? Just that like you think about Monet and even Turner too. It's like they didn't just paint in like these industrial cities. Like sometimes, yeah. sometimes they were painting in their hometowns in these cities wherever. But like Monet went out to the countryside, the countryside. and painted water lilies where there was Absolutely no air pollution. Turner the same. Turner went out to the Alps and the Scottish Highlands and the seascapes where there was there was not gonna the Industrial Revolution hadn't tapped those areas yet. So right, I think what the the study failed to do is read an art history textbook about what those artists were trying to accomplish. Yeah, their how they felt inward towards the world. They weren't naturally depicting the environment, yeah. which the study fails to. All mention. painting isn't literal. <laughs> I, I guess not. You know, I keep a list of op-eds too. Really? Yeah. I have a couple of good ones from like the last week and a half. I'd love to, I'd love to hear it. Come okay. on. I mean, I've learned so much from the opinion section. I'm, I'm not going to waste my time with like research anymore. These, these opinion givers are like hitting it out of the park lately. This one's from The Atlantic. One of my favorites for opinions. 
Did Picasso have peripheral blindness and did it influence Cubism's discovery? What? The Atlantic wrote that? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We owe Cubism's discovery to like ocular degeneration. But Picasso went peripheral blind so the art market could run. A New York Times op-ed recently wrote i couldn't believe this one i couldn't believe that hauser and worth let this one run was philip gustin in bed with big tobacco because all the little cigarettes and all the little thing yeah which (laughs) clearly like that one made tons of sense to me and then of course like fox news who you know clearly loves art (laughs) big art lovers over at fox news fox news on the, you know, woke battlefield front, Curators Guild advocates for mandatory warning labels next to Paul Gauguin works in museums. Proposed texts include, you should not like this painting, or you are a misogynist if you like this painting. Wait, I'm starting to feel like these aren't real. <laughs> As we mentioned, the headlines have been unbelievable lately. Uh, okay, yeah. Another one, actually this one was from Artnet recently, like linked to the database and all this, but apparently Gerhard Richter demanded that the sale of his primary prices be dropped after he said, my painting shouldn't be worth more than a house. He said that? I mean, he was film saying that in the price of everything. <laughs> David's Warner is going to be pissed. Oh, yeah. No. And then another one. This was a fun one in Vanity Fair. Card accident. How Kendall Jenner, I guess, had her James Terrell incorrectly installed in her house. Because Kendall Jenner is so busy in her career, I guess, she didn't have time to actually have the work correctly reinstalled in her house. So she just paid to have James Terrell change the orientation in the provenance of the work. Yeah, those Kardashians are powerful. So those are all real, you're saying? Yeah, the headlines... In the news lately have been unbelievable. So, Professor, you wrote a paper this week where you attempted, you made the valiant attempt to break down and quantify art into a commodity much like a stock or a bond or something you could just easily buy trade and sell correct no did you even read it (laughs) oh my god you're misinterpreting my my point to which end do you even believe in art where is your heart in all of this do you have a soul all right all right all right i think we need to explain because small art smack announcement I have launched a newsletter and it will be free for the audience and I'm going to link the newsletter in the description of this podcast and periodically I'm going to be putting out some articles about the art world, about finance, about technology, the confluence of all three and yeah, I spent 
I don't know how many days was I working on this thing. I just had a thing. You've been ins- ignoring me all week. <laughs> I don't know. I just I had this <sighs> burst of inspiration because I was reading some stuff about art investing. Mm-hmm. And no, I don't advocate to abstract art into this financial security. Mm-hmm. I did it. <laughs> Actually, I'm I'm just kidding. Either way, fine with me. Fine by me. As soon as we can figure out how to make some money on these memes, we're golden, baby. But I did want to put some thoughts down on paper and talk about the history of art investing. And when I say art investing, we're talking about the professionalized, institutional, similar to the hedge fund style of pulling money together and going out at high price points and high total dollar amounts and acquiring works of art for investment purposes. Much different than like just collecting art for your own personal you know, collection right. or institution or museum. I'm talking about the guys and gals that are looking at art in like an alternative asset class. And that's what I wanted to explore. Right. Which before we get too deep into your paper, which I really want to explore, it's interesting because I was talking to a friend via text today, dear friend, and I said to them, I said, can't we just be honest that pretty much everyone who does collect, let's call it like mainstream fine art, and we all know what I, we most people who are listening to Art Smack know what I mean by that, like Anything from the blue chip galleries and, you know, the higher end mega minus galleries, but we'll call that mainstream fine art. You're collecting for an alternative asset class, right? You're collecting because you know that those art objects are either going to make you a lot of money or they're just safe places to park your money, essentially. You're not going to lose money if you go and buy a George Kondo or a Picasso even, right? Like you're not going to lose money if you buy Jonas Wood or I'm just trying to, you know, I could pull out a bunch of names. You're, they're very safe financial investments in a lot of ways. And those are just three random names I pulled out. But Gerhard Richter. Four men, people, if you heard it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Why I, didn't you bring up Mark any women? Bradford. I don't know. It's only men popping into my brain right now. Interesting. Julie Maratu. <laughs> Safe financial investment. One for six. Nice. Do you want me to name some females? No, no. Okay. Anyways. Okay. Sorry. Don't want to get off topic. But we were talking about how, you know, it is pretty much just a, a safe financial place to put your money or an investment. But There's this level of self-delusion that everybody playing that game has to put themselves in, right? So I made this meme about it today, which got very few likes. I don't know if it got lost in the algorithm or if people were like, what the hell is Jerry talking about? But it's the, you know, Drake not liking something and then Drake really liking and it's selling art overtly as an asset class and that's no and then strategic placement of a genius's legacy for 800 percent in profit in just two years and that's yes it's so interesting the, the sort of delicate smooth language that they use to gently talk about 
what happens to art in the buying and selling of art, right? So it's not selling art. It's placing a work, right? So you would never just be like, I sold a work. I placed a work, you know, and it's, it, it was always just this dropping the truth on a bed of feathers, even though it was just as harsh of a reality as like, I sold another BMW today or, you know, I sold a, <laughs> a Bentley today. And I, I remember because I, you know, for all of the sort of language raking that I've had in the last couple, you know, 10, 12 years since I've entered into the art realm with my education, you know, I have not been fully perfected in the sense that I haven't been able to fully enter this nuanced sphere of not talking about like sales and money and art when we're talking about sales and money and art, you know. And I have friends who are the LeBron James of selling art. This is your second sports reference. I know. Oh, no, I made the first. Whatever. <laughs> you knew it, though. You recognized the uh -huh. first one. This is a sports podcast, after all. And when they're, you know, playing the court, they could be, like, talking about slinging, you know, hot work. None of these are basketball terms, which I, I know, love. I know. I don't know. <laughs> dribbling a there you go no 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 just let me let, let the chef cook now we're in now we're in kitchen land but they could be talking about selling work they would never be literal even to me even in the most private space like we could be on a hike in nature and there's no one around for like a, a mile square mile anywhere and it would still be placing a work on a bed of feathers you know, and it took me a while to really understand the coded nature of this language before I understood like, oh, you're, you're elegantly just talking about like, I sold another BMW today. You think they internally know that? They are perhaps perpetuating the fast trading, flipping, selling style of commerce, and they're choosing to use language that obfuscates from that? Or do you really think that they've drank the Kool-Aid on what they're doing? You know, that would be my main question. Well, there's a couple different types of art dealers. There are the sort of dominatrixy types, and these are men and women who love to beat their clients into submission, truly. Like, until they, they're, they're groveling. And like, they're, they will basically pay for three to get one. And one will go to a museum, and one is promised in public. And then the little ugly shitty one that was like found in the artist's studio in a shoebox, forgotten... That is the one they get to take home, you know, and that is how the, you know, the, the dealer will see it's worked out 
and or or there are dealers who and they love to play that game by the way or there are dealers who you know truly s the d of their artists on a metaphysical spiritual plane and like they have drank the Kool-Aid and they believe like they are in service of some kind of living God or dead God. And you should be so lucky to pay any kind of amount of money to get anywhere near close to this object. And they will kick you off for as long as possible, again, sort of until you're groveling for the work and then reluctantly sell it to you. And then it's always with a lot of reluctance. And then there are the dealers who will flatter you to absolute death and make you feel like a genius and make you think that you have this incredible eye, but next thing you know, like, your eye was so genius and you were so incredible, you just bought an entire solo show of an emerging artist that no one's ever heard of. Whoops. Yep. And like, wow, good job. You're such a genius. Or like, you just bought a whole inventory of like an artist that no one's ever heard, you know, like, and they will like flatter, flatter, flatter and promise you also that like maybe eventually you'll also now get access to like the really good inventory. But we needed to just like test you to see if you could like could you really play the game and can we really trust you? Like are you a good patron? This What you're bringing up here is something I did cover in the report, which I, I actually – when I was writing the article, the newsletter, I like made sure to highlight that, what you talked about, which mm-hmm. is the idea of access you yeah. know, to paintings. It's so important. Yeah. But the, the trust thing is like, so there's the being mean or this, the flattering to death. Those are the first two gates of this hell. <laughs> and then it's like, can we trust you? And Can you just quickly, you mean by trust, like to not flip the work for profit shortly or trust is defined by what yeah. in this context from your perspective? So. Can we trust you to spend more money with us? Can, what, what does it mean? I think that the, or I don't think, I know that the art world, you know, the art world professionalized is new like truly professionalized and contracts and whatnot is relatively new, especially at this scale. I mean, now when you buy art, it's it's becoming regular that you sign these non-resale clauses when you buy work from a big gallery, especially if you're buying something that is primary, that you won't sell it for two years, three years, five years is the big number now that's coming up. Recently, more recently was two to three years. And now it's, I'm hearing people say, I won't sell it for five years. And that means, you know, that you won't, 
take it straight to auction right away or, you know. And before people would sign those not giving a shit and just disregard it, who cares, and sell it behind the dealer's back or sell it anyways at auction. And then recently there were some lawsuits and people because people got caught selling these works. And and so the, the whole trust thing, to go back, it's like because the professionalized art world is sort of new, it's like can we trust you to do well with this little baby asset that we're handing over to you that needs like protection? Because – like art is this weird thing where in an ideal world, like ideal, 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 let's imagine this ideal world, you know, here's this painting. I'm gallery X and you want to buy it and I allow you to buy it, but I allow you to buy it under the pretense that you're going to keep it in immaculate care. You're not going to just resell it right away and this artist's career is going to have a terrible, you know, four to six year lifespan and then be forgotten. And then there, that there's going to be a stewardship of the work by this artist, potentially more work by the artist later on, that this work will eventually be stewarded on to a museum that'll take care of it forever or generationally that it'll be passed on because the big dream right is that this work makes it past your lifetime makes it past five lifetimes that you know that the next you know Uffizi whatever that is when they're deciding what goes in the next Uffizi the painting that is in your possession go goes into that <laughs> so like but there's a lot of care that goes from now into like maybe your painting lasting 500 years and the idea that all the signs and symbols and all the ideas that this artist possessed can be safely carried in this object from now until then so can I ask, this perfect world you're describing, mm -hmm. I, I see it and I think it is what people idealistically would want, as you're saying, but the reality couldn't be farther from the truth. Right. That's yeah. what I'm saying. It's a total idealistic world. Right. Why is that? What is the thing about the nature of the art market? As they say in in auction houses, they say in the price of everything, as you've said before, the big three Ds. What are the big three Ds? Three Ds are death, debt, and divorce. Yes. And then they sometimes throw in a fourth called discretion, which is trading, basically. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard that. Yeah. No, no, no. I have not heard that one, but that's that's hilarious. Okay, so four Ds now. So people, you know, first of all, there's the three that we can't really help, right? People die, pe people go into debt, and then- There's big divorces. Big that, divorces, yeah. right. And in those, you know, a judge can say like, you have to sell, uh, you have to sell off your art collection. That's part of it. And so art gets sold that way. 
and then it gets sold in auction. And you can't, you know, the the democratizing factor of auction houses is you cannot control who buys from an auction. Another point I bring up in the in the article. Right. Yeah. So well, I don't want to go too much further into this, but because I, I want, you know, to go into your paper, but these are just the 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 three Ds and then the fourth D discretion, which I think is the one that is abused the most, is you know, people there are tons of ways to sell art and and make money and make money sort of we've we saw it a lot during the pandemic it's slowing down now because from the pandemic there's just less cash in the world right now for this kind of spending but people were flipping art like hotcakes you know during 2021 20 early 2022 it's just not the case right now in the same way. Emerging art is not as hot. People are going back to buying more safe, sort of blue chip, quote unquote, legitimately validated in the system artworks. But, you know, when people let you enter into the circle of trust, they're they're sort of vetting you like are you a safe person are you going to are you going to betray my trust are you going to go and flip this behind my back are you going to take this to an auction house are you going to do something dirty by me and i think that's when the value of dollars that move of art per year has risen so much consequence of that is it can no longer this system can no longer rely on handshakes and relationships it now has to rely on contracts that could be adjudicated in a court of law if there is a breach or a violation of agreements and you referred to one big case that was brought which was paula cooper suing an art advisor and people know the story for basically violating the resale clause contract. Mm -hmm. And that was, as far as I know, was settled. It did not make its way through the courts in finality, but there was a settlement that took place basically. I don't know, no one admitted wrongdoing, but I think someone got paid and that person was probably Paula Cooper. So, you know, the the contracts have now permeated a, an industry that was for decades unregulated, non-contracted, handshaky. And I think with the, the rise yeah, of the and I value. Think you, sorry to interrupt, but if you piss somebody off before, you just piss somebody off and it was more like rumor-based. I mean, it still is very rumor-based in the art world, but it was like if you piss somebody off, you piss someone off, you were out forever, goodbye. Now it's more like if you piss, it's big enough that like you can piss somebody off and still keep showing up at Art Basel or these are these art fairs but you might get sued. Yeah, and it's one of the reasons why I felt like I wanted to put this paper out is because the dual dynamic of just the size of the art market and the popularity of it and the introduction of more contractual frameworks for people to operate as players within it is drawing the attention of a lot of big money people looking at art now as a place where they wanna park some dollars and make some money and in quote, investing, right? 
But like you said, access and trust, even though now they're on paper and all that, it's still, it's still so important when you want to collect good works of art, right? So that's why I felt like this paper and where I kind of steered it in that direction was I talked about these dynamics and why it's becoming now a really attractive place and, and companies are forming to try to take advantage of it. Well, on that note, should we just jump right in? Are we going to do story time? Yeah, let's do story time and then I'll sing a lullaby and then we all curl up in a little ball and go to sleep. Oh, God, I don't know if this is a good nighttime story. I'm a, I'm a terrible singer, so everyone will be <laughs> wide awake. <laughs> I guess, Jerry, do you want me to just kind of read through my my essay? It's It will be available for free. People can sign up for the newsletter in the bio, so if you want to read it. All right, so the piece is called Art Investing. Is it worth the trouble? So much trouble. <laughs> is the art investing hype justified, or are we chasing a mirage? Investing in fine art has been a grown obsession for suits on Wall Street, tech bros in Silicon Valley, and the old dogs in the art world. Companies leading the charge, like Masterworks, an old friend of ours, Securitize, and Yield Street are clamoring to unlock the secret to profiting from the art market. But let's explore the history, some pros, some cons, and the potential future of art investment and decide whether art investing is here to stay. Let's go. Let's do it. So starting off with the history, uh, I'll read it verbatim here, but have you heard of the British Rail Pension Fund? Is this an idea that exists no, in our schools? not at all. <laughs> so we'll take a walk down a memory lane and re-examine the first serious attempt to professionalize art investing. As a quick aside, like, again, Jerry and I are talking about not collecting, but companies that are forming and pulling funds together to go and treat art as purely an asset. So the year was 1974 in the United Kingdom, and things were looking grim. The country was facing its first recession since World War II. The troubles were tearing apart Northern Ireland, and mining strikes were causing widespread chaos and energy restrictions. To top it off, inflation was sky high at 16%. Does all this sound a little familiar, Jerry? <laughs> knock, knock, 2023. Enter the British Rail Pension Fund, a robust retirement fund for the country's railway workers. With the economy in shambles, the fund needed a way to weather the storm and make money through their investments. Their solution? Invest in art. Between 1974 and 1980, the BRPF allocated £40 million to purchase 2,400 works of art. The collection targets included pieces by old masters, impressionists, post-impressionists, and a mix of other categories like Chinese works of art, prints, silver, and coins. So quite the fun little collection they put together there. After holding this collection for nearly two-ish decades, they sold it at Sotheby's in 1996. Expert estimated that the fund generated a financial return for investors of 13.1% per year. That's good. Big success, right? Mm -hmm. To some, yes. To others, not so much. Aren't stocks like, isn't it good if you get like 8%? They've typically year? returned 10% oh, long-term average per year, give or take. So the BRPF's experiment sparked a debate about the viability of art as an investment option. Supporters argued that the fund's accounting methods actually underreported the profits. Apparently, they had used really conservative valuations and metrics to track their financial performance. Some of the supporters of it also said that 
they left some money on the table. They said that the fund's selection of works was way too conservative. They were buying art in the 1970s and 80s, and they were mostly buying old school stuff that from dead artists. They weren't buying Donald Judd's. They weren't James buying Sorrell. Donald Judd's Basquiat. They weren't buying contemporary art at that time. It was right. just not in their investment thesis. So that was some of the the supporters had argued, hey, like they left money on the table. So basically they thought that the practice had tremendous room to grow. In contrast, detractors said the high costs to running this fund and the quote mediocre returns when you factor in inflation at the time weren't worth the trouble. Long story short, the 13.1% was pretty good return, but they argue the fund could may have done better by just buying stocks and bonds and not deal with all these costs of artworks. So the strategy has inspired countless initiatives aiming to one-up the British pioneers and crack the code in art investing. Nevertheless, to this day, there is no consensus on whether the practice is welcomed or a waste of time. What can be said is that there are some clear advantages and clear disadvantages to being an art investor. So let's take a look at some of those. Okay. So give me the ad- advantages. Yeah. Advantage one, potential for strong financial returns. Mm-hmm. So fine art, in particular contemporary fine art, has delivered somewhat promising returns over the last 25 years. That said, take this statement with an entire shaker of salt. Mm-hmm. It's nearly impossible to get the complete picture of the financial returns of art sales. Given that so many sales remain secret and hidden from any form of a public database, experts estimate that roughly 50% of all transactions are conducted through private gallerists and dealers, effectively in a dark market. The other 50% of transactions do occur publicly through major auction houses like Sotheby's and Christie's. So most pontifications about the financial performance of art are typically made only through the lens of auction sales that they can see. So consider an auction house's focus on selling mostly superstar, legends, household names, leaving out that other 50% of private sales, or missing quite a bit of the picture. But, you know, intuitively, nevertheless, if you purchase a basket of contemporary artworks by like Damien Hirst and other young British artists in the 90s, and you held them until today, you'd be pretty happy with the appreciation in their prices. So that's kind of first advantage is that there's like a way for financial returns in theory to be had in this arena, Mm -hmm. just from the historical data. I put a chart in the report that I'm not going to read off here, but if you go and subscribe to the newsletter and get it, you'll be able to see some of the more data driven points here. What do you think about advantage one? Do you agree with it? Totally. Yeah. (laughs) I agree. However, the club, the art club, was so much smaller back then that, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like you could safely say, like, these 20 artists that are in, like, okay, Ninth Street Women, right? That book. All of the women or most of the women, the Abex, the, were all like mostly in the same building along with their male contemporaries who were like in that building or across the street, basically, right? Like they were all- It was Krasner, de Kooning, Frankenthaler, Hardigan, and Mitchell. I think those are the Ninth Street women. And it's not like, oh, the building was packed with 
hundreds of other artists. I mean, they were all kind of the artists that were around. So it was a much smaller scene. So you could, now it's like you go to Bushwick and you pick one industrial building and you've I'm sure you've gone to these open studio days and it's like there's three floors and on each floor there's 50 artist studios. I literally had meetings a couple of weeks ago in one building. I was able to meet with three artists just because they're all in the same same building. But, right. But then again, that's one building of hundreds that exist just in New York City. Not to mention the world, Los Angeles, London, like you're right that this data point that they tracked here describes an art market that started off boutique and then grew into a beast it is now in present day a beast where will it go from here you know you could argue up but you don't know that because the starting base is so elevated it's a 63 60 something billion dollar year sales market so right and uh, the, here's my pontification. Or Which my, it wasn't the case 40 years ago when, when these guys were buying. So anyway. So I always run these scenarios through my head on behalf of these tech bros and these finance bros who are trying to get rich off the art market because like their success is my success. <laughs> huh? I either want to be one of the tech bros who's getting rich with them or I want to be one of the artists that they're getting rich off of because then I'm getting rich too, right? So like I'm always running the simulation in my mind like on behalf of them. And when I was running the simulation again this morning as I often do through my brain, the natural conclusion that I came to was if they do this with such a huge pool of artists in the world who have now been professionalized via all of the art schools and all of the courses you can take and then all the people who just have raw talent and watch YouTube videos and then all the hustlers who aren't really artists but they're just really great hustlers and just like you know all the the mixes of like and then all the outsider artists whatever just you just throw it all in there they you know under the umbrella of artists and shit to buy in the world under that umbrella I was like, how are they going to do this? And I was like, holy shit. In order for them to really refine this process and create market that exists and is viable to, to make anything worth anything for their investors they're going to have to recreate an art market. And in order to do that, they're going to have to turn themselves into art galleries. And they themselves are going to have to turn into art dealers. And guess what? They're just going to reinvent the art market again. And they're just going to become another sector of the art market. Boom. That's a pontification. <laughs> going back to the article, advantage two. So the first advantage, potential for financial returns. Advantage two is art creates a diversified portfolio. So according to some studies, fine art is considered a non-correlated asset. So in simpler terms, 
Historical data shows that fine art prices may even increase during times of economic hardship in the broader economy. And the greatest example, most recent great example of this is June 1st, 2022 of this year when the stock market, everything was in red besides McDonald's. And it was like day one of Art Basel in Switzerland and everything was pre-sold, if not sold out by 11 a.m. Yeah, and this idea of correlation, which I, I have a chart there for people that are curious, it's how things interact and move. Like if a stock market is booming, let's say, to keep it very simple, 10% does art also increase by 10%, that's perfectly correlated. When two things move in unison together, they have a perfect correlation. But the sense is that when stock markets rise by a certain percentage or decrease by a certain percentage, it's not a perfectly unilateral correlated event when it comes to art prices. And that even when times when stock prices are down, historically, again, art has either held its own or gone down maybe just a little bit. It didn't quite crash the way that other assets did. And that's this idea of correlation. It can be mathematically interpreted or intuitively interpreted of just like, are they moving together in the same direction or not? Is it a hedge against potential declines in other assets? So back to the article, fine art is also viewed as a safe place to park cash during times of high inflation. Ding, ding. When the BRPF, the British Railway Pension Fund, first announced its experiment in the 70s, they cited inflation protection as its primary motivator of investing in art. Remember at the time, inflation was about 16% in the UK. Can I, can I ask a dumb question? Yeah. Like, why not for the BRPF? Why like not just buy gold if they were like worried about like inflation protection? Because gold is boring. No, I don't know. It's a good question. I, I would assume they probably did in some way. It, it, important to note, guys, that the pension fund didn't only invest in art during that time, <laughs> but they allocated a decent chunk of their change towards art as a way to mostly, as they said, to protect against inflation, to park their cash so that you know, they could or protect Or just the like capital. things that are... I mean, diamonds. I'm just trying to think of things that are just really... Really don't change. No offense to Art, my dear friend Art, sitting over there looking at giving me dirty looks to like, love you, but aren't there like really, 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 really safe? Yeah, but the thing is NFTs didn't exist back then, so they couldn't put it there. <laughs> I conclude that point by saying investors love to put capital into non-correlated assets as it helps them weather economic turmoil. So advantage two. Art could, in theory, create a diversified portfolio. Advantage three is pretty simple. It's something that we've hit on on this podcast a bunch of times, but advantage three, the growing popularity of art. Art has become a mainstream staple in popular culture. We've got Louis Vuitton and Kusama working together. Super blue, exploding. In, in, in parentheses, Kusama <laughs> and Louis Vuitton working, quote unquote, together 
Super Blue exploding on social media with its Instagram-ready experiential art. Oh yeah, and Art Basel globetrotting around the world without pause. Although these things are hard to quantify directly in terms of prices, these are certainly positive trends that will likely yield high returns for art value for years to come. You want to hear some disadvantages? I feel like I can guess them, but I totally want to hear them from you. <laughs> Disadvantage one about investing in art is that art is illiquid. What do I mean by that? So fine art is highly illiquid, making collections difficult and time-consuming to sell in a pinch. There is no centralized, efficient exchange, like the role the New York Stock Exchange, for example, plays with stocks. The sales channels for art are highly fragmented, and market prices remain opaque. Yeah, you can go to Artnet and look at the comparable prices for your artist. But again, in a market that is so dark that we don't understand, it's hard to trust that as the real market price for anything. And when he says the market is dark, let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, it's not as rosy as uh, these news outlets would lead you to believe. It's very, very stealth and dark. And like half or, I mean, I wonder, I wonder what the percentage is. Like we, what we know of what is on the surface art sales wise versus what's really going on. There's no way to tell, truly. I mean, this is again off script, but you you can take auction records, which are publicly available, will give you a, a sense of direction. And then some outlets do a good enough job, decent enough job of reporting the prices of objects sold at art fairs. For example, after Art Basel, you might see an article that says, here's what's sold at Art Basel, and it'll list the galleries and the sales prices for the artworks. And I, that's publicly available-ish, I guess. We have that. We can add that to a financial model. But like, when you want to like know what the share of Tesla stock is, if, if you're a professional, you have a Bloomberg that tells you up to the millisecond what the price is. Right. Or you have CNBC.com for free. You can go and check out what the stock is trading today. There's very clear pricing about what's going on. But when it comes to your contemporary artwork... You know, it's it is a not to be cliche. It's an art. It's not a science. And there's no one. You know what's so interesting about the art world? It's really true, actually. Just this just occurred to me. No one will really ever pay for like like a watchdog service. Do you know what I mean? No. <laughs> Because you ruin the party. Yeah, because like that would only work when it's to benefit you. But like, you know, so much when it's not going to benefit you and like you need to pull some sneaky shit, you want to make sure that like no one's watching. So, you, you know, like so you can double sell something on a PDF or like, you know, it's so funny, like Every Art Basel, Art Basel releases like the same press release afterwards being like, this was the most successful Art Basel we have ever had. And of course, they did that again during Miami Beach. And then 
my friends keep sending me the same PDFs or from like all the different art fairs that have happened since Miami Beach that have like the same artworks that are for sale that were for sale at Art Basel Miami Beach. So like this claim that like sales were so good and every you were with me all of our friends that like work at the booths were like whispering in our ears like oh my god sales are so bad this year like I can't sell anything above 50,000 I can't sell anything above 100,000 like we saw like major senior sales directors on day three like sweating in their clothes like trying to move works normally after the opening for 11 a.m 12 they're gone and like done their job yeah and someone junior is just like standing there checking their face or their instagram for the next three days so you know it's just so funny how there is no watchdog nobody's there's no one to to fact check what's really going on ever in the art world right and you know not to mention which i go into the article here is the sales process for selling your art it's not as simple as just clicking a button on a screen it involves significant transaction costs there's commissions obviously that are big there's shipping storage insurance maintenance all these costs add up. They're not like a brokerage account, like you have Fidelity or something or Robinhood where you own the thing. It costs money just to have ownership of these objects. Most importantly, it takes time, sometimes months, sometimes years to sell a collection entirely. So I just think about my time at the auction houses, right? Like big 100 plus artwork collection, it's not sold in one evening sale at one single time. They'll try to load up as many works as possible and bring them to market. That's a sometimes a year-long process beforehand of marketing, of preparing, of getting ready. It's a lot of work to sell one painting. Wait, Professor. Yes? I have a question. Because I just... Oh, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed to admit this. I just opened my first... Roth IRA. Congratulations. Thank you. You're not supposed to touch it until you're for how many years? Here's the 59 and a half or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, don't quote me on that. And I probably can't touch it until I'm 69 because I'm so old starting it. Fuck. But, you know, there we go. There's a, there's a very obvious or any kind of investing, you know, long-term investing. They tell you like, you're going to put money in or even bonds, bond strategies for like bond yield strategies, right? Like, whoa, who is she? She's been reading. You know, like you're not, you know, even to get your 4% from an American bond, like you're not supposed to touch it for X amount of years, four years, two years. But like most investing besides like day trading or something, they tell you, like, this is going to take years. So, like, f- set it and forget it. Like, don't even plan on it. So shouldn't, like, people that are buying art also sort of have that strategy and then maybe they can manage that expectation? You would think, right? But when it comes to investing or flipping or any of those types of stuff, no. It's, it's, it's one year. It's 12 months, baby. Less, you know? Let's get going. 
So yeah, it takes time. It takes time to sell a collection. Months, years, there's preparing to sell collections. There's, you might not sell everything in the first day. You might strategically say, I'm going to sell a little bit this day, and then I'm going to sell the rest over the next two years. Again, comparing it to stocks, like, that's not the case. If a fund has a bunch of Tesla and they want to, they want to sell it, they make a few calls, they run it through algorithms, and that's done. Max couple days to completely clear huge positions. And that's, you know, again, a disadvantage to collecting art. The next one you're going to like. Okay. Next one I think you'll have thoughts on. We kind of hit on it before, but disadvantage two. Remember, disadvantage one was it that art is illiquid. Disadvantage two is the art market lacks regulation. We've all heard of art forgery scandals. They've popped up quite consistently on Netflix documentaries and article headlines. Even some of the most prominent connoisseur collectors have been duped by the best forgers in the game. The market is largely unregulated, as we discussed earlier, making it difficult to access reliable information and increasing the risk of fraud and unethical practices. This startled me when I, when I this next line, I'm doing some research. In 2014, the chief of Switzerland's Fine Art Expert Institute claimed that 50, 50% of art circulating on the market is forged or misattributed. Hmm. So this is just an estimate. And the true number of forgeries floating around is impossible to know with our current technology. But the point is still quite scary. So, yeah, the art market's unregulated. It's a wild west. We talked about before, there are some, I guess, quote, encouraging signs of people using more frameworks, contractual frameworks and standards and rules. But that stuff is still dragging its feet. So, again, making comparison, there is entire federal agencies that are dedicated to regulating securities trading, like stock trading. You know you have a regulatory framework where if you're buying a share of something on the New York Stock Exchange, I mean, this is, this is kind of a weird example, but it's not going to be a fake share. Like, you will own those shares. There's no risk of that. Something just occurred to me, and I don't know if I've heard this before or if I just made this up in my head, but... It would make sense to me that abstract expressionism and a lot of modern art is going to, is so eternally like big on the market and hot on the market over old masters and contemporary art because it's so easily forged. Like, a Rothko would so easily forged. Jackson Pollock, definitely. Like, a lot of these paintings, like, they ha they are, they have been, they were. Like, there was this big scandal with, like, an Upper East Side gallery. I'm, I'm going to totally butcher this right now, but I listened to a podcast about it where this woman started showing up at this Upper East Side Gallery saying she represented the estate 
of a family, a very wealthy family that wished to remain anonymous, who basically had a fortune of, you know, Abex works, and they were getting very old, and they were thinking of parting with a few. And this woman just slowly, you know, matriculated, and this dealer was, like, so thirsty for them because she was, like, the dealer was, like, holy crap, are you kidding me? Like, I've never had, like, a, can't remember who it was, like, Clifford Still or a I can't remember who who the Abexer was. He was like, you know, big names. And so she was like, gimme, 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 gimme. Yes, 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 I can I can place them. But she didn't like bother to really look at the provenance, you know, and a lot of a lot of when she was having like people like check the work because they'd only had one owner, quote unquote one owner. Which, by the way, is is always a really sketchy. It's like when someone's, oh, there's a unknown Michelangelo that has been in my family for years. You're like, eh, yeah, is it? Is there? Yeah, I'm yeah. sure. You know, oh, you, oh, you, you only had it. Okay. Yeah. It was. It was hit. It was lost. It just got lost, and yeah. it was, ended up in Pasadena, California, with you. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, and and so this. There, there was like no provenance and it was it's very likely right because the abstract expressionists were like poor and basically giving these paintings away and not keeping track you know and anybody could have walked into their studios and bought five for 200 bucks in 1940 something you know and so it couldn't really be disproven. And whenever she would have somebody look at them, they're like, they also were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. And so this lady, the dealer, I think also got sentenced because they were like this, you were negligent. And the dealer was like, her, her statement was like, I really didn't know. And she was like, they're like, how could you, how could you not have like looked harder into this? And even most recently, down in Florida, there was a big scandal around some fake Basquiat's not at some museum down there. So this <laughs> stuff happens, and it's like, how can you know <laughs> what you're buying truly? Yeah. There's a huge re- regulatory forgery risk. Also, I didn't even mention it, restitution. Like, if you buy something, restitution, the idea being that objects that were stolen from the Jewish population during World War II were now, after the war, a lot of them were lost or stolen or taken away from the families that owned them and ended up in museums and collections all around the world. And even today, there's still works of art that have suits against them from the heirs of the family saying, like, no, that was my grandmother's, my great-grandmother's painting. Like, it doesn't belong to the museum. It belongs to me. It was stolen from me by the Nazis. That's a huge risk, too. Mm-hmm. So all these things lead to a, you know, a disadvantage, let's just say. Disadvantage three, the art market is volatile. The art market is highly cyclical and volatile with prices fluctuating greatly based on the popularity of artists and styles. You and I could talk about lengths about this, about the ebbs and flows. For example, one day abstract paintings may be all the rage, but in an instant figuration takes over. And I didn't write that in the article, but 
even artists within that movement, let's say the broad movement of figuration is great right now, it's hot. The artists within that, that segment can shift rapidly too. This dynamic, which can happen fast and ferociously, adds tremendous complexity to any investment process. It's reminiscent of the altcoin craze of the past few years. Some tokens promised a revolutionary technological path, only to be worthless days later. Similarly, emerging art stars are sometimes born overnight and fade into obscurity just as quickly. For the readers, there's a chart in there. It's kind of complex to view, but it shows the comparison between the swings, the volatility of art prices, and also the volatility of stock prices. And all you need to take from this chart is that the swings, the ups and downs of art are much wider than the swings in stock prices over time. So art is a volatile asset. So we hit on some of the advantages, mm -hmm. the disadvantages, and we started off by going through a quick history. So let's talk about the future, the future of art investment. But first, I haven't mentioned the most significant factor at play when investing in art, access. It's uh -huh. kind of what we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. You can study the charts and talk to experts until you're blue in the face. But at the end of the day, it's all about who you know. The gatekeepers of the best works, those artists, museums, dealers, hold the cards. And if you're not in their good graces, you're out of luck. Schmoozing and networking are essential in this game. And you only get one shot for a first impression. Fall out of favor and you could be shut out forever. So what does this mean? This means that the cream of the crop, the works with the most potential for huge upside, are often out of reach for the new investors in the game. You're stuck playing the game of taking what you can get at the price you can get it. It's kind of like we hit on before. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I always think this, you know, if the dealers, you talked about them placing artworks, why the fuck would they place an artwork knowingly with someone with pure financial motivations? Yeah, or like a right? financial institution. Yeah, like, yeah, so you're stuck playing the game of taking what you can get at the price you can get it. I know what you're thinking. Auctions, right? Auctions offer a democratic way to purchase a work of art. Mm. Anyone can go and bid at Christie's or Sotheby's if they have enough money, of course. They run a background check on your, your wealth before they let you <laughs> bid. But the cost of that democracy is steep. Buyer's premiums, which are the fees that you have to pay when you buy a work of art, which, by the way, can be sometimes up to 25% of the price. Well, and the rapid bidding. And that's the buyer that pays that, not the seller, right? Yep. And the rapid bidding process can inflate the acquisition cost, cutting your potential returns. So, yeah, you can go and you can go bid in the artwork. A fund can sign up for Christie's. But all it takes is a gentleman out in Hong Kong or someone in the Middle East to say, yeah, but I want that paint painting too, and I don't care what I have to pay for it. So yeah. I know you had this strategy about you wanted to acquire a mm -hmm. Abex painting at $1.4 million entry point, but yeah, we're going to bid you up to $10 million. Mm -hmm. So what comes next? If you glance at the websites and public marketing for the new players in art investing, things seem hunky-dory. Promises of huge returns and 
beat the market are abundant. Masterworks alone is valued in the private markets at over $1 billion. We've covered this in the past. More and more entrants to the space frequently arrive, signaling that the entrepreneurial sharks see blood in the water. So maybe these new entrants have cracked the code and figured out how to optimize art investing, minimizing those disadvantages we discussed, such as it being a liquid, mm -hmm. there being very little regulation, and the volatility of art prices, and have figured out how to navigate the promise upside, great returns, diversified portfolio, and you're capitalizing on a really popular thing in culture. Truth is we won't ever know unless the results of these companies are shared publicly and subjected to analysis, a scenario that will likely never occur. My advice to them is to pay a great art advisor with access. That's your advice? Yeah. So. Wow. So this is all a commercial for art advisory. <laughs> I got Hashtag one, art advisory. <laughs> I, got, I got one more line for them. So after the Sotheby's sale of the British Rail Pension Funds collection, mm -hmm. told you they sold it in the 90s, those works found their way into major international museums, and some are considered British national treasures. When asked the fund manager who ran that scheme for mm -hmm. the British Rail Pension Fund, ask, how'd it go? Did you enjoy the process? How'd it go, mate? No, wait, that's, that's not British. I don't know what that was, but when they were asked, the quote was, we wouldn't do it again. <laughs> That's the article. Well, first of all, I'm going to do some golf claps only because I don't want to disturb the microphone, but good job. And you really just shit on the possibility of all those tech bros and finance guys getting into the art world. They're going to have to earnestly learn to love art the old-fashioned way and get in line like all the other simps and kiss the fucking ring and go Indiana Jones style into the Temple of Doom and, you know, earnestly put their heart at the altar of each and every mega gallery at which they wish to purchase X artist and pray that they don't get stomped on by the senior director, you know, who is the holy priestess guardian of whatever artist is at mind. Because really, like, it's a hard, it's a hard game to get into. I, this is why I wanted to write it. I just want it to be known that it, it's very tempting to look at art now as a financial asset. And the natural evolution when things become financial assets, like real estate became a financial asset. And the real estate investment ecosystem is fucking massive. Mm -hmm. Tons of companies doing it and tons of ways to get in on real estate. Look at crypto, right? Crypto became a financial asset. And yeah, a lot of ways to buy crypto popped up and a lot of companies got in on this new market. And like, I think I'm seeing based on analysis of companies that the dual factors of the art market being as large in terms of dollars per year, and then more regulation and more oversight 
theoretically coming into the space is making it an attractive place for people to look to financialize and turn into an investment class. And <laughs> buyer beware. This is not a, a market that behaves like other asset markets, other alternative assets. We're not talking about gold here. We're not even talking about watches, wine, jewelry, all those types of things, which are like in that class. The art world is an entirely different beast. It truly is. Can you compare it to anything else? I can't. <laughs> Fucking wild You're the west. one that went to business school. Come on. Yeah, I've never seen anything like this thing in my entire professional career. Do you think that is the thing that gets so many people like sort of psychologically addicted to yeah. it? I think it's a I think it's a frontier. I think it's a frontier like our ancestors moving out west, people are moving into the art world. I used to have a tote bag with a quote on it that allegedly was from Marcel Duchamp that said Art collecting is the most addicting drug. Ding, 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 ding. Well, let us know what you guys think. Subscribe to Professor Matthew Costco's <laughs> That's not going to be a name of the newsletter. But I'll, we'll, link, we'll link it. If you guys are interested, I'll link it in the description. Sign up for the newsletter. It's entirely free. You'll get that article. And I have some more ideas I'll be coming out with really soon on more topics. Again, related to art, finance, markets, tech. And what's going on in the space. So, yeah. And coming up next is, you know, we've got Freeze on the Horizon in yeah, Los we, Angeles. We mentioned we'll be out in LA. So we'll continue to look out for announcements on that. Yeah. There's some things um, coming. Make sure you're subscribed to gagosian.com. We have something special coming up and you'll get an invitation if you're a subscriber. And... Also, you'll be getting my newsletter, which is my report, my hot take. <laughs> and then we'll be doing an episode on that, which is kind of how we're going to be structuring some of these new podcasts going forward. We're writers now, okay? Okay. We're just podcasters. Okay. Wait, before we go, Arts Market is an independent podcast, and we rely on, on your guys' support. Five golden coins. Just kidding. Stars. Drop us a comment, a review. Give us your ratings, five stars, please. We really appreciate it. Somebody, really... two, a couple people have given us bad ratings because we're we're four point four point eight now. Gotta so get those numbers up. Those are rookie numbers. Did you, did you look at Did you look at that? Is it like all five stars and then like two one stars or what? What's the situation? Did a few people give us four stars? Yeah, it was my mom and dad. They didn't like it. <laughs> they were bad. My mom is listening. Every week, my mom is like. Good job on the podcast. I'm like, no, to self. Being kind to my mom on the podcast. I love my mom. I love my mom. She did a great job raising me. I'm perfect because of my mom. <laughs> Hi, this Jane. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. This has been real. You're listening to Art Smack. See you later. See you in Los Angeles at Freeze. <laughs>